Good morning, Ozark family. Today, we're going to talk about the first three commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm excited to be in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about the first three words because our God is a bringing out God and we are a brought out people. Apparently, the new guy preached on that last week. That's right, Jason did talk about that. Okay, okay, so I love Deuteronomy. I'm an Old Testament guy, and so there's tons in there. Uh, there's a lot that Deuteronomy says about like the family unit of children obeying their parents and just the dynamics of the family. And so maybe we'll look at what it means to obey your parents for college students. So Mark Scott is bringing like his whole family in next week and basically uh, Isaac... Help me out. What am I supposed to be talking about? <laughs> Thanks. From the book of Deuteronomy, dietary laws. I promise this will be the best sermon on the dietary laws that you have ever heard in this chapel. It will be the worst sermon that you will ever hear on dietary laws in this chapel because it will probably be the only sermon on dietary laws that you will ever hear in this chapel. And so buckle up, buttercup, let's go. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, let's go. Open it up. What goes in matters because it affects what comes out. You are what you eat. What goes in matters because it affects what comes out. You are what you eat. Let's just have a reading of, the Deut of Deuteronomy chapter 14, the first 21 verses. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourself or shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> the antelope and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud and that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. That's a rock badger. If we ever need to change our mascot, we should be the rock badgers, the hyraxes. <laughs> That'd be good. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. You may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat, the eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the, osprey, the comorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, that's a good one too, and the bat. 
All flying insects are, clean to, are unclean to you. Do not eat them, but any winged creature that is clean you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any, any other foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Now most dismiss, did somebody just amen that last little postscript that Moses threw in there? And absolutely. Um, and I was starting to dismiss it, and as I discussed this sermon with John Kerr, he goes, no, that's really important. I go, okay, I'll go study some more and figure out why that's really important. And most people dismiss the dietary laws. I mean, come on, all foods are clean now. We're going to have pigs in a blanket at some point in the cafeteria. I mean, God is good. Like, all of our foods are clean. And so we could just kind of dismiss these, and maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, why are the Old Testament, Old Testament dietary laws important? Why are they important? Why are they important for us to look at, to consider and to be thankful for that, that they're in there. Well, let me just give you three reasons to consider from this text. One is that the dietary laws aren't just dietary laws all by themselves. Uh, Israel's eating is directly connected to their holiness. Did you catch that? Their eating, according to this text, is directly connected. It's attached to their holiness. I mean, we've already learned that uh, God has brought out their parents from Egypt, that, they're, that they've gone out from Egypt and, and their parents all died in the desert. And now Moses talking to a new generation that's going to be brought into the promised land. But being brought up out of Egypt and then knowing the sins of their parents, uh, there's generational sin that wants to creep in to the Israelite camp. And it did a little bit through the book of Numbers, like we can see that. And then they're being led to the promised land, which is occupied by the Canaanites, and it has, uh, they bring their whole, a whole new set of trials and temptations as they go into the land that God has promised them. And so God gives them instructions about avoiding cultural behavior around them. That's part of the point of this passage of scripture. It's just not about what you eat and what you don't eat, but look at the culture that's all around you. Look at the culture from where you came out of and look at the culture and where you're going and avoid those cultural behaviors that are sinful from cultic practices like shaving your head for the dead or cutting yourselves or the weird text about the cruelty and uncleanliness of cooking a young goat in its mother's milk down to the Israelites' food choices, down to the very birds that they're supposed to eat and winged creatures that they're supposed to eat. It says to Israel and to us that no matter what you have faced in the past or what temptations await you in the future, be holy children of God in the big things and the little things, even in the seemingly small things like what you eat, because what you eat is part of who you are. You are what you eat. Now, the Israelites also uh, were in, given these instructions, I think, because God wanted the Israelite diet to match God's sacrificial diet. And we could just put diet in quotes there. Like God didn't literally eat these animals, but God considered certain animals detestable. Now that's the word that's used. And we don't know exactly why. Some commentators will say it's because of the hygiene of the animal. A pig and slop is pretty, pretty disgusting. 
Maybe it's carnivores or scavenger birds that were unclean. None of it really matches up, and there, a lot of it is just speculation. Bottom line, just God said these are the ones that are, that are unclean, and these are the ones that are clean. It could have to do with how other nations used those animals and the stigma that was attached to it back then. But what we do see clearly, what is for certain is that God wanted Israel's physical diet to match the sacrifices that they made to him. They would never go to the priest and bring a pig to the altar. That would be rejected as unclean and inappropriate, an inappropriate sacrifice to God for the atonement of their sins. No, he wanted clean animals for that. So bulls and blood, the blood of bulls and goats, lambs, you know, and he has very specific specifications for the sacrifices. And so now he also has very specific, spe- uh, specific laws for what they eat as well. And so eating animals were a daily reminder, not just of God's provision for them, but God's mercy and his grace that something needs to die for you to be sustained. Something needs to die for you to have those hunger pains to go away with the meat that you eat. And so the Israelites' diet was to match God's diet. It's as simple as that. And then third, the Israelites' interaction with food is a reflection on their interactions with people. Food is just better with people, isn't it? You think about meals that you had. Now, some of, the, some of the worst moments of my family, not my immediate family, more my extended family, has come around the dinner table, um, for sure. Uh, but some of the greatest blessings have been enjoying that food with people. And God even, God even hints at some of that in here. You can miss it if you're not paying attention, but protein was hard to come by. And so when you saw a dead animal, you saw some roadkill there, you should just eat that in the ancient Near East culture. Like that, that would be good for food. Wasting food that was, uh, that was potentially unclean for the Israelites would be foolish. But, and food prep was important for them as well. They were supposed to cook the animals in certain ways, drain the blood, eat certain parts of the animals. And so it was not appropriate for an Israelite to eat an animal that they found dead on the road, but it can be used to bless a foreigner in need that there were foreigners that were living around them that did not have to hold to these laws. But, and so God said, hey, use that for them. God had a plan for charity and good stewardship. That was part of his plan then. And so the way that they eat, eat uh, the way that they were commanded to eat affected the way that they were interacting with people around them. And so in this text, God is displaying that food is not just food. And it's not just this text here. Food is not just food. What goes in matters because it affects what comes out. You are what you eat. And I know many of you in here, it's like, okay, who cares? Because we know the New Testament just abolishes all of these food laws. And so you made your point about the Israelites and what they were supposed to do and not do. But I just don't think that it applies today. Oh, but you could be, that's, that's foolish thinking. Here's three questions just for us as the OCC family to chew on. They're related to the first three things that I just laid out there. One, do you connect your holiness to your eating? Do you believe that what you do down in the calf is just as holy as what you just did in here in song? Now, eating is a daily thing. Chapel is a special weekly thing. We know, those of us that were here last year, how much we missed chapel, even though they did a great job putting it online, even though we we had opportunity to interact uh, with our classes still, but when that was kind of stripped away from us in, in our regular routines, oh my. 
can you imagine if your eating was stripped away? Most of us in here, I can't say everybody, but I would say most of us in here do not know what it's like to go hungry. And yet, across all of our nation, there's surveys that go out. They're the same surveys from the same people that go out across all college campuses, and they give them to students to evaluate um, how these colleges, secular, Christian, doesn't matter, uh, how they're doing with their services that they provide for students. So your dorm life, uh, the staff and faculty that are there, your financial aid and admissions and classes that you have, uh, student services that are available to you, the facilities, and also the dining hall. And across the country with all these other colleges, the thing that is always ranked the worst is food. That always has the lowest ranking. And I wish I could say that OCC was different. But in your surveys about our cafeteria food and our cafeteria services there, it always ranks lowest. Now, I know the CAF, I know the CAF workers that are there, they're wonderful, hardworking people, and I know they do appreciate honest critique and good feedback to improve their services. Every department on our campus appreciates that when spoken in the right spirit and everything, but I wonder, I wonder if our immaturity, in our immaturity, our OCC family seizes this opportunity to conform to the culture of complaint. Do we complain about little things, like food? Maybe food isn't such a little thing, and maybe we should be careful with that. How dare us bow our head in one moment on a Christian campus to thank God for the food that he has provided, only to raise our head up and to complain about it in the same breath? There's hypocrisy in that, and I think we're conforming to culture a little bit. Just because every other college says our food is gross doesn't mean that we need to say those things or even think those things. Not only does this hurt our hardworking cafeteria employees, and they are. They work tirelessly, and when we have snow days, they still show up but it offends the Lord who provides for us. I mean, it was just a generation ago in Israel that they were complaining about manna in the desert and they started dying because of it. I mean, the whole book of Numbers, the one right before Deuteronomy, is all about their complaints and how they complain against God, their great provider, and maybe, just maybe we should learn from history. And so I'm going to ask you today, here's, uh, I'm gonna ask you three things today. Thing number one that I want you to do, that I just want you to vow, even right now in your seat, is to do everything without grumbling and complaining, but in, in that specifically with food. That we vow to take on an attitude of gratitude with food that we do two things with every single meal, that we thank God the provider without complaint. We thank God the provider without complaint, and we regularly thank the preparer with full sincerity of heart. When is the last time that you thanked your mother for making food? When is the last time that you looked a cafeteria worker in the eyes, learned their name, and said thank you for food? Let's change the culture of complaint with a little thing like food and let's watch complaining disappear from our duffel bag of idols. Thing number two that we should consider is does your diet match God's sacrificial diet? 
Does your diet match God's sacrificial diet? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, we know when you study the Old Testament that Israel uh, sacrificed bulls and goats and lambs day after day uh, for the atonement of their sins. And day after day, God provided the same clean animals for them to eat as well. And then Jesus comes along in Mark 7, and he says things like this. Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them. The context is ceremonial cleanliness and washing and eating. Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it does, it not go into the, it does not go into the heart, but it goes into the stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, is the little parenthetical note that Mark gives us there. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, I know you guys, you're Pharisees, teachers of the law, disciples, you guys are so worried about what's going into your body that you don't want anything to defile you ceremonially. He's not talking about uh, safety. He's not talking about health things. It's just ceremonial uncleanliness. You're so particular about that, but don't you care about the things that are going into your heart? Because what goes into your mouth goes out of your body eventually. The digestive process from beginning to end he's referring to and what goes into your heart on a daily basis will eventually come out of your mouth. What goes in must come out. And then he adds this little tagline and he says, and in doing this, he declares all foods clean, seemingly abolishing the food laws of the Old Testament. What makes a person ceremonially unclean is not the food, but what enters the mind and comes out of the mouth via the heart. And I would contend that Jesus did not necessarily abolish all the dietary laws, but instead he fulfilled them. He fulfilled them. I want you to think about it. Let's just go a little bit deeper here for a second. We see in Christ that it has always been impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10 tells us that. That day after day, year after year, the day of atonement, they would bring their sacrifices and it could not erase their sins. It could not take away all of their sins. And then with with the coming of Jesus in the flesh, God changed his diet. Or we'll put it this way, his diet was more fully uh, revealed to us. He only accepts the sacrifice now of his perfect son, Jesus. That is the blood that takes away the sins of the entire world and your sins and mine. And so, so to speak, he's, he's changed his diet. I don't want bulls and goats anymore. Instead, I want my son, Jesus. That's going to be the ultimate, true justification for sins at that point. And so with that, the dietary laws and the sacrificial system and all of that goes to the side, fulfilled completely in the person of Christ. Therefore, we can eat pork with freedom because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. We don't have to concern ourselves with our dietary laws anymore because Jesus wants us concerned about deeper things. No wonder John the Baptist proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and he's pointing at a God man taking away the sins of the world. And then Jesus, with the feeding of the 5,000, you remember this, he feeds them, and then he goes on to the other side of the lake and they run around there and they're, they're hungry again. We want more food, Jesus. Do another miracle, get us more bread. And he says, I am the bread of life. And then in the bread of life discourse, he says, you've got to gnaw on my flesh and you've got to gulp down my blood and it offends every true blue Jew that's in there. We don't eat the flesh of man. We don't drink blood. 
No, that, that goes completely against our laws and Jesus is not merely for giving us a foreshadowing to communion, although that does work in that symbolism there, but that's not exactly what he's doing. He's giving us an invitation to fully ingest Christ crucified on a daily basis. Just like you eat bread on a daily basis, you take me in on a daily basis. And since Jason's sermon, since Mr. Posnick's sermon, have you feasted more on Christ or have you returned to your little gods in the duffel bag? Did you walk out of here? Did you walk out of here and said, that is a great sermon and I can't take, wait to take a class with that guy of which I thought for sure there's nothing wrong with that at all. He knocked it out of the park for your benefit and mine to go and let go of the little gods and eat something with substance and nutrition not empty words. And yet, a few semesters ago, I saw this, this text that, that was going around on a dorm floor that there were 650 hours played of Super Smash Brothers on one electronic device. So just one, one game system, one console in, in one room on that floor, 650 hours, and they were wearing it like a badge of honor. That is 27 days worth of video, get one video game on one system in an 80-day semester. Whew. My point is not to pick on video games. I drink my own addictive poisons as well. Like, like we, we have them, I get it, but Lord, give me clean hands, give me a pure heart. I'm tired of lifting my soul to another. I'm hungry. How about you? And so the question has to be asked. I mean, let, let's just talk about ingesting Jesus just in one facet right now. Just one facet with the daily word of God. Do you only eat from God's word when you're force-fed in class or spoon-fed at church? When you're left to your own devices, when you're sitting in quarantine, when, you're, when we're at a stay-at-home order and you could do whatever you want, whenever you want, do you daily feast on the word of God like you eat meals? First thing in the morning, at noon, night, whatever those habits look like, or is your go-to thing whatever's in this bag? I've had to ask myself that. I've had to consider that in my own, my own life. You are what you eat. The more of Christ you taste, the less appealing the things in here appear to be. And so dig into the word, and I know you hear it time in, and, you know, all the time at Bible college, get into the word. But what I'm saying is, is that if you don't want that, if you don't hunger and thirst for that, when you walk out of here and your professors aren't forcing it upon you with memory work, and you're, and you're out there leading the church, you will simply dig into the word for mechanical reasons, to prepare a lesson and to deliver a sermon. And you don't eat on it just to be nourished. And we must be careful of that. I have this uh, special Bible here um, that I got to open it up with a friend of mine. It's called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. It is self-published, so if that tells you anything. 
Um, and my friend that had this, that introduced me to this, his name was Jesse Lamb. Um, he was the president of the Student Secular Alliance over at Southern. Uh, this was a number of years ago. Uh, he was a nursing student over there, and he was, he was in charge of the Atheist Club, is what, what he did over there. And as we developed a kinship and a friendship, we started looking at difficult texts in the Old Testament that he really struggled with, some from Deuteronomy, as a matter of fact, and, and just engaged in Bible study. He was not giving his heart over to the Lord, and I was trying really hard. He was not necessarily trying to convert me. He didn't care what I believed or not. He just liked the discussion. Um, and so through that friendship, I invited him to a class that I used to teach um, to come in. And the title of his class was, the, his session that he would teach was Top 10 Reasons I'm an Atheist and What Christians Can Do About It. And so he was going to give ammunition to our students in that class of what they can do to help talk to atheists intelligibly. And, and, and to, to actually have good, logical conversation. Uh, he was definitely a humanist. He, he definitely believed in, in evolution and, and tons of apologetic stuff uh, that, you know, that, that, he would, that he was completely into. And one of his points on there was to know their material well and know your material better. And so he's speaking to Christians and he's saying, know my material. I like Hawkins and Darwin, and this person, and this person, and so he started going on about the people that he liked, and he was speaking about apologetics mostly at this point. He says, know my material, but you need to know your material better, and he went on to talk about how he reads his Bible, and I could validate this when I was looking at it. He reads, he highlights, he makes notes at least once a year, at least, and then there was some text that he was studying even more. And then it quickly came out in that class that not a single person in there had ever read through cover to cover. And these were the freshmen that were training for ministry. And they're pushing, they're pushing it away. They're pushing their food away. As if it's a bad meal. And instead we go to what's in here, feasting on that. Come on guys, we cannot let one atheist show us up. We can't do that. We need to know our material. We need, to first, we need to feast on the word of God just like we feast on food. As a matter of fact, my second challenge to you would be to be the, this, that when you wake up in the morning, if you struggle with just loving and feasting on the word of God, when you wake up in the morning before you put food to your lips, you will put your eyes in the word. Before you put food to your lips, you will put eyes in the word. I don't care if it's for memory work, I don't care if you're meditating on it, I don't care if you're just reading straight through, I don't care if you're studying a passage for class that Mark Scott's gonna talk about, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter necessarily. Just start building the habit of feasting on the word just like you feast on food. Jesus is our bread of life. And you get grumpy when you don't eat, don't you? I know I do, when I skip a meal, when, when I miss breakfast or lunch or something, I get grumpy, how about you? Maybe we're spiritually grumpy. Maybe God is waiting to open up a, a threshold of revival on this campus that is going to be built on students committed to feasting on the word of God. Things to consider. Thing number three to consider and apply. Do you categorize people as clean or unclean? 
The Deuteronomy text shows uh, God's care for the foreigner and, and ties that to food. And instantly when I read that, it reminded me of Acts chapter 10 that also connects foreigners and food. You, you know the text. The pigs in a blanket start, start coming down from heaven as Peter is hungry. And I never actually noticed in that text that Peter was hungry when he went to sleep and fell into this trance-like vision and God sends this sheet down and he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry? Eat this. And it had all these unclean animals that are listed in the Deuteronomy text that God lists there. And Peter, of course, uh, no, Lord, I have never put any detestable thing to my lips. I've never put any unclean to my thing to my lips. Don't you dare, Peter, call what I have made clean, don't you dare call it unclean. Now get up, kill, and eat. And we know that vision has little to do with food and it has a lot to do with people. And, he call, and God calls him to go to Cornelius' house, lead him the first Gentile to Christ, and that's why we're all sitting in here today. My son Caleb, uh, my youngest boy Caleb, he's in high school, he's a senior in high school. As a matter of fact, today he's on a Tuesday tour. There's my man right there. He's a tall drink of water, I love him to pieces. And, um, and I, I absolutely love Caleb. Uh, we have a whole lot in common. And in our house, when it's somebody's birthday coming up and he was in elementary school and his birthday was coming up, they get to choose where we go eat. Usually it's a little bit nicer restaurant. Um, the, the way we distinguish nice and not nice restaurant is whether you order off of a screen or you order off of a menu. You know, that's kind of our distinction between nice and not nice. I see lots of parents shaking their head yes in here. That's their distinction as well. And so Caleb gets to choose anywhere he wants to eat. His birthday, um, this particular particular year was on a Friday. So it was Friday, August the 15th. So it's payday for most people. And so everybody was going in Joplin, was heading out to the restaurants that Friday, and Caleb chooses CeCe's Pizza. The $5 pizza buffet menu. Great for an elementary age kid, great for a college student that's broke and you just want to eat a lot of food. In my mind, I did not want to go to CeCe's Pizza. I know my wife did not want to go to CeCe's Pizza, but we went to CeCe's Pizza because it was his birthday and it was a madhouse zoo. I mean, it was just no holds barred. Uh, screen guards up do nothing when you're this short, you know? <laughs> hands in food and, and parents that were not taking care of their kids and there's, there's dads that have white t-shirts on and, and stains on it and missing teeth and, and just lots and lots and lots of people that I just don't want to associate with and I, and I gotta tell you, uh, in my heart and in my thoughts right then, I'm thinking, what am I doing here with this trailer trash? We're better than this. We can afford better than this. I don't care what my son wants. These people don't know how to keep their kids under control. They don't know how to treat waiters and waitresses. They don't know the proper etiquette for buffet lines. They this and they this and the, just the judgment and judgment and judgment. And I know in my head that God does not expect social, moral, or religious purity in order for a person to be accepted by Jesus Christ. I know that in my head, and I just do not have that in my heart. Because somewhere along the lines, whatever I was taking in about myself and my status in life and who I am was in that moment in my head and even verbally was coming out of my mouth that I am better. Acts 10 is not about bacon, it's about the broken. It's not about what you put in your mouth, but about who Christ has called into his arms. And I was being a roadblock to that. I was the one who was unclean. 
I was the one that needed the Shema to call me to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. And then Jesus, I needed that reminder as well that he calls me to love my neighbor as I love myself and I was not loving God or my neighbor in that judgmental moment. And so my challenge for you today is one to connect your holiness with your eating and to get rid of the culture of complaint. My challenge is to feast on the word just like you feast on food. And then my third challenge is to just ask, do you know somebody who is unclean? That if they were listing out humans like they were doing in the book of Deuteronomy, that they would be in the unclean portion. Don't touch them, don't talk to them. The unclean were never refused food in the Old Testament. May they not be refused food from us, spiritual food. Will you text them? Will you give them a phone call? Will you have a conversation and feed them some Jesus today? Because what goes in matters because it affects what comes out. You are what you eat. Are you hungry?